This is the BrainX podcast. At the BrainX, we are solely devoted to science and its beauty in its purest form. This podcast is just one among other endeavors of the BrainX project. We aim to raise the scientific consciousness of India by connecting people to the romance in the process of scientific discovery. Do visit us at thebrainx.org. That is thebrainx.org and our social media handles for more. Hi everybody. This is the BrainX podcast. Today we have with us Professor Rakesh Chandra. Thank you sir for coming on my podcast. Uh, Professor Rakesh Chandra is the former head of the Department of Philosophy at University of Lucknow. He was brought up in Lucknow. He is known as one of the foremost leaders in the analytical philosophy in the country. For over 15 years he has also worked as an activist for the cause of women empowerment. He played a crucial role in the establishment of the Women's Studies Center in Lucknow University. He has also worked in UNICEF. His uh, academic career has been usually equally remarkable from student to assistant professor to associate professor and then to a senior professor of philosophy he went on to be the head of the department in addition to being an activist he is also a philanthropist and a lover of traditional forms of art today he is with us to talk with me on a very serious issue science in india I believe that his views on the issue deserves attention. He is known as an analytical philosopher who is carrying on the tradition of Immanuel Kant. Analytical philosophy and logical positivism has been very much the philosophy of 20th century scientists, very rigorous, critical and demanding an immense dexterity of thinking apparatus. Most of the analytical philosophers of the west have been advocates of science and have had influence on the manner in which science was perceived and done in the west bertrand russell being one the views on science in india of professor rakesh chandra being an analytical philosopher himself are of deep importance to the brainx project so sir uh, i welcome you once again uh, so uh, i have a few questions and these questions are uh, more or less about um, the psychology of our country and how it perceives science and why has there been not a very sufficient and 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 satisfactory output from the scientific enterprise of the country thank so, you very uh, much uh, uh, shivam for your question let me first begin by uh, expressing my uh, sense of unease with uh, uh, the whole question the first is that if you're looking at science in india the science in india is as old as our civilizational history and it would perhaps not be entirely correct to say that uh, india did not have a scientific temper uh, because the kind of records that we have both uh, written as well as in terms of uh, manifest architectural um, political cultural artifactual uh, navigational splendors uh, would not substantiate necessarily that there was a neglect of science and uh, also of technology in the indian subcontinent uh, however you would be right in saying that in the recent past we do find that the kind of phenomenal uh, 
throw up of science and technology and its benefits to the society as well as temperamentally, attitudinally, a certain kind of a respect and excitement for science uh, needs to be strengthened in India. So what do you think about uh, the importance of scientific center for the development of a developing country? Uh, India, uh, we are now all talking about India coming to the forefront and uh, even if we were not to come to the forefront, we are a sizable country in the world, one-sixth of the world population living in India and if we were to live uh, with democracy, with plurality, with uh, acceptance of human rights, we need to make available uh, all the benefits of knowledge which come uh, to uh, the populace and in that I think uh, scientific temper which means a temper of asking questions, of accepting fallibility, of experimenting and of going with the courage to be wrong subsequently are extremely important. And how about scientific passion, enthusiasm for science, uh, for finding things out just for the fun of it? Uh, there is, I think, uh, this is an absolutely crucial and the right kind of uh, question that you have. I do find that it's not just about science, it's about all learning. The joy of being a learner is something which we need to introduce to all our children in schools. And uh, why only children in schools, but uh, in all members of the civil society, that they must be excited uh, to know about things to experience the joy of learning, to uh, experience the joy of finding patterns, uh, of being surprised by pluralities, of being uh, wanting to explore uh, alternative ways of dealing with reality and respectfully looking at both nature and other people's views, which I think is also essential for democracy. So, to my mind, uh, India's democracy essentially requires a scientific temper and a scientific people. Democracy requires people who are educated and education requires democracy within itself. Um, why is it that this, despite the heavy uh, investment in science education and, and also engagement in science education at the high school level, even in coaching centers across the nation, we are not able to produce passionate, outspoken scientists. There, must, there, there has been a very heavy engagement. <laughs> well. uh, you know, passionate uh, people uh, for any subject uh, is difficult. Yeah. yeah, I would say that you know, uh, what encourages passion is a certain kind of an environment, and. Uh, what I have found is that, that the whole education system is very uh, test-oriented, uh, marks-oriented, and it is not necessarily related to how excited you are about uh, what you are doing. It's about uh, whether you factually deliver the correct answers. So you are not rewarded for your artistic or scientific attitude, but for your uh, information reproduction. So uh, the system of evaluation, in fact, also largely colors that. The uh, I would uh, for firstly like to substantiate this, that the fact is that, that when modern India came into being uh, 
if you say modern India is a post-independence phenomenon, which I wouldn't agree. I would say modern India actually begins uh, 100 years back. It begins with Vijayendranath. It begins with Rabindranath's uh, grand, uh, grandfather. It be, uh, belongs to the age of Rabindranath. It belongs to the age of uh, Michael Madhusudan Dutt. It belongs to the age of uh, Meghnath Saha and the others. So many of the pre-independence people. So modernity to me comes somewhere very soon after it came in Europe from 1900s onwards. But when you talk about uh, India, independent India, in independent India, I would uh, like to draw the attention of all young people that we had our science policy well articulated before we got India's independence. We set up very big centers for uh, learning. Uh, we also uh, then developed a science policy. Uh, IIT is, is one thing because it's technology, not science. So everybody is taking, uh, and that's one thing which I think you need to also have. Think. Science hyphen technology is a troubled notion. That's my upcoming question. Yeah. So uh, I think that we did put investment into uh, science. We did put uh, focus on the uh, teaching of science to young people. But to get a large number of teachers trained for that, we needed to do something. And I must happily share that with you, that the Keral Shastra Sahitya Parishad, the Kishore Bharati, the Eklavi experiment, a huge amount of experimentations in India on popularizations of science happened. And of course, the biggest figure in this was Professor Yashpal. But uh, since we are a very large country and uh, getting more and more inclusive, so more and more people coming into schools to get them excited, to keep on our enthusiasm is a difficult task and we need to renew it time and again. Science enthusiasts and science popularizers so few in India. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let me give you one uh, very personal. I can't give you a big reason for everybody because that, that's uh, not what I can say with great confidence. But I know that there are a certain set of scientists who think that their task is primarily to do the specific scientific research that they do. And many of these people who were doing very hardcore specialized researches in biochemistry or in nanotechnology or in um, nuclear physics uh, were sometimes scoffing at those people who were doing science popularization because they thought that you are actually whittling away your energies in doing something. But if you do science, then do science. Science popularization must be left to lesser people. And uh, as I confess, Professor Yashpal was generally the target that why is he at this old man dancing in front of children to help them to understand the movements of the yeah. So a lot of people laughed at him in the scientific circles. They and many of them thought that he was doing something which was not yeah. So, but nonetheless, they uh, he did that, and a lot of people uh, followed that. So. And what community? What community of people were laughing at him? The scientists. As in. <laughs> not, not the right time. Uh, many, many serious professors of physics. Mm -hmm. uh, they were even saying that you know, here is a person who can't do good physics, and therefore he goes to popularize it. So, and that's exactly the kind of thing which is not said only about science. It is said about many other things. That people would say that about Purushottam Das Tandon, that since he was not uh, a great novelist like Yashpal and Hazari Prasad Devedi and Bhagavad Gita and Varma, therefore he goes to do work for Nagari Pracharani Sabha. 
So popularization of a subject and excelling in a subject are not exactly the same cup of tea. So popularization of science is a mission and uh, doing science is maybe a passion. And what you are asking for that why can't we have both? entirely convinced about that. What I find is that, that you know, um, there are uh, uh, two sides to it. Uh, the fact is that some people um, are excellent at what they are doing, but uh, may require some help in terms of communication. Or, on the other hand, there's also the other view, which I also sometimes hold, is that, that if you have the sincerity of intent, then your communication is successful. And the biggest example of that is Mahatma Gandhi with such a small voice, such a uh, horrible handwriting and manages to change history. Uh, but in the present age where uh, manner also matters as much as content, I think that some of the science communicators are well aided by people who uh, study human psychology, who understand visualization and so it would be a good idea for them to get together. And. Uh, I must give you an example of uh, one very outstanding person in Lucknow, in uh, CDRI, who used to make cartoons of science called the Scientooms, and he explained all sorts of theory through cartoons. So there are communicators, and uh, in and far between, uh, for popularization of science. But I, uh, Shivam, I think what you are exp uh, wanting is not just popularization of science, but a certain kind of an excitement about yes. the very enterprise of science which I think is the enterprise of knowing and the enterprise of finding joy in learning about the world because learning about the world is actually learning about oneself. So how, if I know the history of the universe, I know something about my own self. If I know about uh, multiple geographies and multiple people living all over the world, I know something about my own genetic heritage. So when I know about the foods in different continents, I know something more about what I'm eating for breakfast. And so uh, how the uh, excitement of knowledge and how it actually is the development of the self is something which I think we need to constantly encourage. There are teachers like that uh, everywhere and uh, may they try and may they help them. Sometimes they get together. Sometimes they get together in programs and a mission mode. The Natural Literacy Mission Mode uh, was one great exciting opportunity where at that time a huge amount of people from the south who had extraordinary work in teaching of mathematics, a lot of good people who had uh, uh, extraordinary work in terms of teaching of uh, science and simple technology who came from Bhopal. Uh, they all got together and we had the National Literacy Mission. It was a great excitement and it was done in a mission mode. A large part, uh, the uh, enhancement of the literacy rate at that time became very large. 
similarly now if I must say that uh, the, the DPP program supported uh, with the World Bank money that also created a lot of centers where things were being done. Uh, I am sure the Krendri Vidyalaya Sangatan and its books are also very exciting. The new CBSE books are also very exciting. They are talking about project methods and the others. Uh, I am not saying that it is enough. There is always much to be done. But if you look uh, at the earlier things, we have really moved quite a bit. Uh, I can see that you are not happy with that. And I really am happy that you are impatient. Um, it is impatience which is very important, which will drive us faster. But uh, to a culture which was badly colonized, which was destroyed, whose institutions were ruined, whose intellect was humiliated, uh, in that to recover and to participate and to be recognized was a momentous task. I mean, I do meet people, uh, I tell them about my cause and they do call me, you are a son of Macaulay. Hmm. No, right. Uh, on Macaulay, let me again come very forthright. Uh, despite the fact that so many things which he says are factually incorrect, humiliating and downright uh, colonial, uh, there are a few things about which we need to uh, listen carefully and which fortunately we did. He said, you are teaching Arabic and Sanskrit by paying both the teacher and the student. People in India are ready to pay for modern education, which means Western English education. Soviet Union and many other countries have progressed by doing that. So why don't we introduce that when we have only one lakh rupees for the total investment of that? I think uh, wisely this was heeded and we got that kind of an education. The intent of that was not necessarily to bring in enlightenment in India, but to enslave us. But we use the master's tools to break the master's house. And the ideas of modernity came to India and especially law and the others uh, were used very, very well by the Indian people to uh, fight colonialism. Therefore, uh, Macaulay uh, and the British rule had many uh, good effects despite of them not being intentioned, well-intentioned. So the whole uh, translations of a lot of global knowledge came to India. Uh, our exposure to that became large. But how is, how is my, I mean, what, what is the perspective these people would, would, would tell me that, well, uh, because I'm working for the cause of science, I'm a son of my colleague. Oh, oh. No, no. That I think it, it's it's an ill it's, it's an ill it's an ill-informed, uh, tragic, and a pathetic uh, view, uh, which says that. Uh, and uh, what is the alternative to Macaulay? If you were to say that you know uh, go to the traditional um, schools, then we uh, have to understand that most of the traditional learning was hidebound and uh, was not made available to everybody. So public education, uh, education for everyone, uh, comes only after 1835. Uh, uh, the Charter Act comes and then you have a, a national level uh, design for education. 
which is not at all to say that you know no great education existed in the past there was great education i think there must have been great geometers and mathematicians and architects who built these absolutely outstanding structures but uh, it was all confined to certain groups and therefore uh, public education came with national policies and uh, so we have to just accept it as part of our history uh, you cannot celebrate macaulay but uh, you also have to see that the limitations of that and i think it's very well brought out in aurobindo and when aurobindo said that actually in india uh, by when the british came in we were already contemplating and critiquing uh, the uh, staleness and uh, the repetition of indian education system so he was saying that in the initial stages of indian society and indian uh, knowledge was intuitive questioning then uh, you've tried to find out uh, rhythms and patterns and laws uh, and that's the time of the shastras and then institutions were built and then the institutions started to decay and uh, they ended in a situation where we were just only chanting without understanding which he calls the age of panditism and that is why when in the time of, of the european encounter you were already having a lot of voices of dissent you had kabir and nanak and aradas um, and all of the others who were uh, questioning the orthodoxy it must have been a long time since you read aurobindo uh, hmm. could you just uh, recall which books were these uh, this is i think from, from 1918 uh, to 1920 21 uh, especially i'm referring to these essays uh, is india civilized uh, is india uh, indian renaissance um and where he's actually trying to reject the idea of uh, the west that india is only mystical uh, religious and world denying and he's trying to say that you know that's only a partial picture have you received a similar remark from people that for for your very fine english that you are you were also the descendant of macaulay maybe uh, walking along the same lines uh see the fact is that uh, try that we may uh, i take that uh, with honesty and humility that we are macaulay's children uh, my father and my grandfather and perhaps my great grandfather also are all baba black sheep um, children and uh, where we went to school and we said oh this is the way i brush my teeth on a cold and frosty morning where there are no cold <laughs> frosty mornings so that's the way it has transpired yeah. but the fact is that i don't feel uh, apologetic about it this was uh, india's history and in that uh, because of the treachery of our own people and because of the cruelty of the colonial powers uh, they managed to uh, dominate a great civilization that civilization had its own self critique and it emerged uh, bright and shining and now with the natal education policy we are now again trying to say that we take the best from what there was in the tradition and move ahead with a fair amount of courage and confidence to reject what is not correct in our past so my next question to you is uh, 
what are the major reasons in history, historically, that Europe and America have been able to cultivate the world's most productive, critical, as well as passionate pool of scientists? Europe and America. <laughs> Shivam, you are going to have it hard. I am not entirely convinced that scientists have a scientific temper. Uh, and uh, you have books by, written uh, with uh, evidences from Nobel Prize winners who go back to believing that our belief in God and faith remain unperturbed by our scientific temper. And sometimes they say that the more we understand uh, the reality of the nature, we are we marvel at the grandeur of God's design. So uh, I'm not very... It must be an emotional appeal, but don't you think that this kind of uh, scientific work that they do somehow crawls into their subconscious and, and makes them, you know, uh, habitually a scientific animal? I am not... Uh, going to buy that wholesale, but I would say that uh, a scientific temper uh, combined with uh, a practice of science is something which we need to cultivate. And a scientific temper even without um, the practice of science is actually essential. And uh, I would try to see, say for instance, let me uh, try and say something. In uh, what happened after the Enlightenment and the Renaissance uh, and uh, the coming in of the Industrial Revolution in uh, Europe uh, was not all good. A lot of uh, people in Europe were deracinated and uh, cruelly crushed. A lot of other people were disrespected and called tribal and primitive. So uh, the identification with a certain kind of science and technology and anybody who did not agree with that being demonized and crushed has also been a part of the colonized uh, and colonization in the world. Uh, destructive techniques being developed with the help of science are well known, including the nuclear bomb. So uh, I would not validize uh, science uh, and technology uh, to become gods, just as Marx would say that capital becoming the new god is no great uh, improvement on the earlier non-capital god as being uh, there. But uh, this is for certain that uh, in my reading and uh, the coming in of Protestantism and the coming in of the printing press and large-scale education of the people in Europe did not have a counterpart in India. So uh, there the coming in of the printing press uh, uh, led to a greater democratization uh, of even of the reading of the Bible and uh, scientific texts etc. etc. In India, in the freedom movement, again, we saw a great power of press uh, for um, purposes which were not only to make India independent, but also to make India more uh, socially egalitarian. So when uh, Gandhi publishes Young India or the Harijan, 
uh, as the name suggests, he's targeting the young and he's also targeting the unserved. So it did have uh, the same kind of a thing. Post-independence also, I think, a large number of Indian newspapers had a double agenda and they had an agenda of promoting um, scientific temper in the society and uh, you found a lot of magazines, if you, would re uh, you wouldn't remember, it was, it's in our generation, a lot of magazines like, uh, which were like uh, counterparts to Scientific American were small magazines used to be published in India to popularize science. I would still argue that uh, if there was a 2018 book by Stephen Pinker and uh, the book title was uh, Enlightenment Now and he in the whole book shows graph after graph, chapter after chapter of how uh, science and uh, scientific society has actually uh, flourished the lifestyle of people and made them more comfortable. In, a, in, a, in, a, in one line he summarizes his whole work as uh, we are living in the best century, the best time of the whole history. This is the most uh, sustainable, most, uh, at least in contrast to the history, this most comfortable life we are living. And this is because of what science has done. I would completely agree with that. I would say that, you know, uh, uh, the idea of uh, a knowledge-based society uh, where knowledge of the world uh, including both the physical, natural, as well as the social phenomena, uh, is systematically done, is a much better society than the one which believes that some word of an imagined or real uh, outside force will tell us what to do, is a much, much better world. So I completely agree with that. But uh, how Europe and how America uh, succeeded in gaining its strength uh, over the rest of the world is actually a story uh, not necessarily based upon scientific temper, but on political collusions and uh, ruthless uh, kind of crushing of people. There is never one particular event driving the whole course of Yeah, so I would say that uh, despite all odds, I am absolutely amazed and uh, delighted that despite the all odds, uh, the Indian uh, scientists made themselves uh, visible even in the time of the British. Uh, they got good collaborators, got recognition and made a space for themselves. Even now, I think that uh, the science and technology uh, in India uh, is flourishing. And in certain cases where it is not flourishing, it is not necessarily because of uh, the lack of their scientific acumen, but because of many other political questions like not being, uh, not getting the kind of resource that they can have in a country which is so poor and uh, the kind of huge expenses that are required uh, for buying machinery and the others. Uh, also, uh, the kind of uh, certain kind of a parochial ethnocentricism of the European and the American mind. Uh, so I do take, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily making excuses 
I do find that uh, the young people all over the world are uh, excited and they want to pursue their courses. Uh, science education in India is still very expensive. Uh, schools have not been able to give laboratories. Uh, the idea of giving virtual classrooms is a good idea, but I think it's not a substitute for actual manipulation of instruments. Uh, therefore, I think uh, we are working with great odds and I'm not necessarily uh, pessimistic about it. I do think that, uh, say for instance, in one of the states of Gujarat, uh, we did, did find that uh, even the private schools are now supported with labs by the government. Which brings to my next question. Uh, we Westerners believe that we are living in the best century because of the Enlightenment era, because yeah. of science, but it seems that Indians are happy no matter what happy with their superstitions. That's, that's my, my question is, uh, why are well-educated Indians so vulnerable to religious narrative, superstition and propagandist gurus? Because on the, face, on the very face of it, most of these narratives are very hard to close uh, Yeah, I, I, I also wonder that, um, but the again, the point is that um, in the classical Marxist critique also, you have to remove the conditions uh, which actually sustain false consciousness. So talking against superstition will not work as much as taking away the conditions in which superstitions become the only refuge. This, if I really had a good smallpox inoculation available, I would not go to Shitala Mata. So if I go, did have a good medical service, a good educational opportunity, a good job opportunity, why would I go to places uh, like that? Yes. Yeah, so, <coughs> and this I have seen that even post-COVID, you find that when a large number of people lost their jobs, uh, the lines outside the temples have increased and uh, the prayers have become more uh, passionate. So you have to understand the reality which makes it necessary for people to go to uh, take these refuges, which they all know are the last refuge. So I would consider it not necessarily to be, a, uh, although I do agree with that, that uh, there is a certain kind of a stubborn uh, narrative about uh, some kind of an absolutely untenable view about that we have always had it right. So, which I think is uh, troublesome um, and uh, also a cause of embarrassment when you, <laughs> as you were mentioning that, you know, when you talk about the gods as plastic surgeons and <laughs> medicine men. So that I think is a little embarrassing, but uh, it should be just taken, be taken with a pinch of salt. For a well-informed person, science and technology are two different spheres. Are two different spheres. Science and? Science and technology okay. are two different categories, two different spheres. There is a fine line. Why is there a tendency in India to confuse the two? Oh, because, because I was also mentioning to you an example 
uh, example that you'll see repeated on almost every news website. When you go to any of the news websites, let's say Aajstak website, uh, Z News, uh, these popular websites, uh, Republic, you shall see that uh, science and technology, there's a tab for science and technology, uh, and these are confused, and the news that you have, it's, 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 a, it's a jumbled up, of, you know, yeah. everything is mingled together yeah. and confused. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even see a tab for science at all. Yeah. You may see a tab for gadgets, you see? Gadgets. Yeah. You may see a tab for technology, but science barely, barely, you know, finds a mention. Yeah. It's not necessarily a confusion. Uh, there is a, a certain kind of uh, understanding with these people have of... Um, can you put it off? Pause for it for a minute. The science-technology distinction, uh, I think, has to be clarified uh, in terms of uh, old uh, story, which I think you, as a philosophy student, know very well. That uh, there was a distinction which was drawn between techne, arate, and episteme. So the knowledge of science is actually knowledge of causes and knowledge of how things happen. And technology was more related to production, that how do you produce things. Uh, technology does demand a knowledge of science, but uh, uh, knowing the causes of things for its own uh, sake and knowledge for its own sake uh, was supposed to be the highest form of human uh, perfection and desire. And in that, science was supposed to be uh, largely and uh, a kind of an investigation, uh, a pure kind of a desire to know how things are, uh, which may or may not necessarily lead to the development of uh, instruments and uh, things which shall subsequently uh, manipulate and become beneficial for humankind. But what has happened is that uh, subsequently, I think the major interest of uh, governments and policy makers in science seems to be only insofar as it leads to technology. And this I must give you, since you are an educationist and talking to other education people, if you look at the design of an education, of a research proposal anywhere now, in, whether in the US or in the UK or in India, they would say, okay, what is the technological throw up? So even if you are doing a research in philosophy, they say, okay, what is the benefit of that which will come again? So looking at... Uh, any kind of knowledge enterprise in terms of its productive value is now the norm. And the norm is there because of the funding agencies. And the funding agencies, including the government, are now looking at it only in this way. This has been, I think, a terrible thing for years together. And all the people, uh, even in sciences, are saying that unless you have fundamental research in science, you will never be able to have any kind of a technological throw-up. But that fundamental research cannot be guided only by uh, the function that it has in terms of the technological throw-up. So if you did not have some good research in solid-state physics or in the structures of molecules and how they interact with each other, you will never have the kind of technology that is required for creating the latest apps. But Creation of apps is not the main motivation of doing that kind of research, and they are perhaps not the same kind of people. 
So the people who find joy in creating apparatus are not the kind of people who find um, joy in investigating the real nature of things as they are. So that's, and I, in India, I think it's the science hyphen technology also leads to many, many big problems because then when it comes to that, are you going to support uh, an MSc program or a PhD program or are you going to support uh, an IIT or an ITI, then you would take away the fundamental research and support an ITI, which I think would be um, not so nice. We know both of them, uh, but for different purposes, and uh, one cannot uh, function without the other. In the last 75 years of independence, barely had it been that a scientist had headed the Ministry of Science and Technology at the center. Do we lack enthusiastic scientists who can also run this particularly important ministry? It seems that people in power have dodged away from science and consistently so. Why do you think people in power have consistently made decisions uh, as such for a long time, if you believe so? Yeah, uh, I don't. <laughs> Nehru, who was no, uh, who had no degree in science, was a great science enthusiast and uh, he got the best people together to find the uh, best institutions perhaps in the world in India. Uh, similarly, similarly uh, Maulana Azad, uh, who was an autodidactic who had no formal degrees, uh, was 11 years our um, uh, education minister and brought in extraordinary institutions for the promotion of both art, science and culture. Uh, similarly, I have uh, this belief that uh, uh, during the period of Rahul, uh, Rajiv Gandhi, who was again uh, a pilot and had no uh, fund degrees in fundamental research, brought in people like Sam Petroda and brought in great excitement in that. Uh, of course, Narsimha Rao had many degrees, I'm sure some of them must have been science degrees, but he was uh, again responsible for bringing. So I don't know whether necessarily you have to have a professional scientist uh, to uh, understand the need of science uh, at the level of policy because when it comes to executing of a science institution and making uh, the detailed, they will always be experts. But the minister need not necessarily have a science degree. And as I said, you know, we have had eminent uh, people with the law degrees uh, who have actually been the biggest law breakers. So I'm not so excited about uh, professionals in politics. I am sure the scientists must head the department. So, uh, but the, uh, that the scientists must be the minister is something which I think uh, is trouble. Because uh, as I said earlier, uh, when we were talking about Professor Yashpal, there are many people who would do not uh, feel that, you know, that they can do more than science. So they know what uh, science is. They, some of them may choose to do fundamental science. Some may not do a true that. But to go into science administration is not something that you can compel a good scientist to do. And uh, I would again say that uh, we were fortunate to have uh, 
APJ Abdul Kalam as our president. But I think when it comes to the promotion of science and technology, Nehru was no less. Yes, um, And so would be perhaps Atal Bihari Vajpayee. Yes. And uh, the present uh, Prime Minister, uh, who has a great enthusiasm and interest, uh, especially in technology. The theme of Indian Science Congress. I'm very pessimistic. You, know, you see, you must. Uh, I'm very pessimistic about the way things are. Um, but um, I'm, I'm looking for some hope, and I think that if we become more uh, critical about the kind of scenario that we are facing today, probably there is a there will be a sunrise. So that's why all these uh, critical way of looking at things. Uh, Prejudice as well, I would say. The themes of Indian Science Congress, which holds its annual session every year, has been mocked by many prominent people from the global hierarchy of sciences for themes such as science in ancient India, in particular the Pushpa Viman thing, you know, the people talking about Pushpa Viman, and uh, uh, without any mention of the aerodynamics, what kind of aerodynamics we should be have, of Krishna lifting that. That you go over the mountain, probably there must have been some special thing, technique or you know, science. Uh, plastic surgery, Shiva performed plastic surgery on Ganesh and things like that. Why is this nostalgia being driving force of Indian scientists? I am not sure whether it, this is the uh, driving force of the Indian scientist. This nostalgia. Uh, the, uh, uh, no, I would say that. Um, Indian scientists, to my mind, have been driven by uh, the same desire as all scientists in the world to get to the truth. And in that, if, uh, they are taking as their resource uh, primarily experimentation. And uh, in the history of experimentation, uh, they may have books which are written in different languages in different times. And sometimes they use it as a reference point. So uh, uh, the idea that you mentioned are all uh, strange, uh, fancy ideas, uh, which are um, said by people uh, off the cuff. And I think uh, they should be treated uh, with uh, some, <laughs> they I think they could be ignored, if I would say. <laughs> they could be ignored because they cannot form the part of the policy. Uh, but the kind of picture it paints of Indian scientific community for the West to see, huh. for the, and not just the West, but the global audience to huh. see. You know, don't you think this is a big compromise? Uh, no, see, I think the uh, the, the ones who are, if, would, uh, by these isolated remarks, if the uh, scientific community of the world scoffs at the Indian scientists, they are doing it at their own peril. Uh, because we have had uh, world-class uh, physicists, mathematicians, biotechnologists, uh, whom they have also had to acknowledge um, by giving them uh, the best awards in their field. So whether it is Ramanujam, whether it is uh, Kurana, whether it is uh, C.V. Raman, whether it is uh, Meghnath Saha, all of these people have had to be uh, acknowledged by them. And in terms of uh, 
you say for instance medicine i think uh, a large part of at least the southeast asian people are coming to india for health care so they'll have to come to dr trehan to get their hearts operated uh, so the question is that uh, the flourish of the political <laughs> uh leaders should not actually lead us to make a judgment about our science policy so uh, i would say don't get disappointed by these remarks because these remarks are made by people they do not know what they are saying forgive them for they know not what they say. <laughs> because uh, it also not just the picture that it paints but also um Yeah. So, uh, so again, Shivam, then you go back to the whole question: uh, teaching of science, practicing of science, and development of scientific temper are not the same thing, and we need to be very careful about that. And what we need to develop in uh, the world over is a scientific temper. Uh, so, the people who are uh, destroying the world using weapons in the name of uh, a certain religious bigotry. Uh, are using science and they are technologists osama bin laden was an engineer so um, science would bring uh, what we call roshan khayali or liberalism is not a natural fallout uh, the that requires political social cultural imagination and uh, that i think is more necessary i take scientific temper as philosophical temper uh the question of questioning the question of uh, going to find arguments the question of going to evidence having the courage to stand by the evidence having the courage to withdraw when you have contrary evidence uh, so what you're saying is uh, the last 75 years of uh, investment in science science and scientific education has been very much mechanistic i would say that you know one i think is that uh, again i would um, you are an impatient young man <laughs> i would say that you know no i love that and i love that and i'm so um, so much reminded of my own youth but um, what i would say that that you know <clears throat> there were huge amount of trials a lot of people invested themselves a lot of people did a lot of hard work but we are too many so we have to reach out to many many spaces uh, the hinterland as they are called uh, these spaces which were uh, unreached so far to get to them to introduce them to uh, modern education to modern uh, thinking i think is a big task so we cannot be complacent and say that no since we did it uh, at one time we have done it all we have to constantly to renew no i'm not saying that uh, i'm not saying that at all what i'm saying is that that uh, nobody is a problem if i am the first child born to my parents in 2023 and i happen to be the uh, one 
to a 100, 150 crores child, it's no fault of mine. I deserve everything that any human being does. So I'm not the problem. That uh, the world uh, uh, needs to take care of me, give me my human rights, which uh, means uh, an opportunity to develop all my capabilities. So I'm not saying it's a population problem. What I'm saying is that uh, just the other way around. Earlier, if 10 people uh, were educated, we said Greece is an educated people, place because Socrates and Plato existed that. Uh, England is an educated place because Newton comes from that. What about the rest of the English people in Britain? Were they all educated? Were they doing the kind of thing that we expected? Now, because greater humanity is included and we are more inclusive, therefore, I think we now are seeing that, you know, of course, you will find 20,000 people in the country who are fit into your idea of scientific, educated, modern, liberal people. But there are these other people who are now also called people. Earlier, people did not take them to be people at all. So because of the greater respect for the larger humanity, I think our task is also now larger. So we need to introduce more and more people to what we have learnt and what we think uh, is the right path to go and also negotiate with them. And the kind of intervention that I am trying to make, hmm. what do you say? No, I would say that, you know, the joy of learning, uh, the history of learning, um, the possibility of uh, expansion of the self uh, with a systemic study, with more information is absolutely fantastic. And I think it's uh, if uh, teachers can bring in that kind of an enthusiasm into their classrooms, uh, you see that in uh, our philosophy departments, we try and do through our Saturday seminars and the others, bring in some kind of an excitement into the possibility of uh, engaging in some kind of a demonstrative debate. That, I think, is all that we can do. Uh, create more and more opportunities for children to ask, more and more opportunities for children to learn about how people asked, faltered and uh, moved ahead, and how uh, some of the biggest scientific failures in the world are actually very, very useful. Today, people are optimistically looking at the new business startups in the country, IT startups in the country, IT hub is in India, the new Silicon Valley, they say. Uh, what do you think about the scientific enterprise in India in the near future? Should we not invest in that direction, our energies, our efforts? Are I am absolutely 200% uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, of the belief that fundamental research in social sciences, in theoretical sciences, is a top priority. It has to be done. Nothing can succeed without that. We need to invest in that very greatly at the level of higher education. At the level of uh, secondary education and at the level of of uh, primary education, uh, excitement for learning needs to be nurtured. The uh, technological throw up, uh, the requirement of being able to handle the world, uh, 
should not be the only parameters of judging uh, the policy initiatives in the country. And I do think that uh, the present education policy is very exciting, although the parameters by which success is being judged is problematic because they are saying uh, internationalization, technological throw up and uh, employability are the three standards by which they will judge, which I think is a mistake. What I think uh, is necessary right now uh, is that to go back to understanding that knowledge for its own sake is primarily the human enterprise and all people who are now being included in a more democratic manner need to get that opportunity to participate in this exciting uh, journey of knowing. And so if you learn from uh, how Aristotle was learning and exciting or since you are a great fan of Francis Bacon that how his whole experimentation led to his death. <laughs> or, so though it may lead to your end, but the excitement for experimentation and learning uh, is in fact what makes us distinctively human. So it's our creativity and our desire to know more uh, is which actually uh, brings us to the human level. I was talking to one of the visiting professors at IIC Bangalore. She is a well accomplished. Um, we were discussing on the way physics should be taught. And she asked me, uh, well, you look, you, the way you look at things is quite different from the way we had been looking mm -hmm. at things. How do you think, Sharon, would you teach, uh, let's say, electrodynamics? electrostatics and magnetism to a freshman in a university. How would you start that course? So my, I said that I would first of all talk about the friendship. At the very first, hmm. first class I would talk about the friendship of Max, Maxwell, James Clark Maxwell and Michael Faraday. How they had a friendship, What uh, from what kind of uh, background they were coming, they came and uh, how their friendship led to one of the biggest discoveries that's driving the modern technology today, the digital technology today, information technology, one of the rudimentary findings of Faraday and Maxwell together. So I would talk about their friendship. Her reply was, they had a friendship? Were they collaborators? Yeah. Were they contemporaries? We had never heard about that. Yeah. And she was an accomplished figure. Yeah. She was an accomplished yeah. figure yeah. in, yeah. in, in, yeah. in yeah. condensed right. matter physics. Right. And she barely had the idea right. of the history and, and how fascinating it is. Yeah. So this is your, uh, see, this I think uh, is an extremely, extremely telling example of uh, uh, how to understand uh, things separately and then put them together. Uh, the question that you are now raising is about pedagogy. It's about how to teach, not about what to teach. Because the what is, if you define science in terms of what it is, the body of knowledge and the method of getting it. Now, that, if that is, you know, science is a systemic way of understanding reality and the body of knowledge is that if it is physics, then it is this, this, this stuff. If it is chemistry, it is this, this stuff. If it is social science, it is this stuff. Now, if you define that in terms of that, so science, this is what, you should promote science? Yes. You should promote scientific temper? Yes. Now the question is that how to cultivate scientific temper, the pedagogy of it. 
there's a very interesting kind of a thing that we thought that not all chemistry professors can be good teachers. Uh, so teaching is an art and it has to be learnt and uh, so there was an idea that we should have a five-year course uh, where you had a B.Ed and a B.Sc together. So if you want to become a, not a physicist but a physics teacher then you must know physics and you must know how to teach physics. Now, in this question, the question is that how to make it more engaging, more personal and more uh, uh, intimate to the person. There are people uh, who would say that it's important uh, to bring in stories, the call of the story as it were, that you uh, bring in the stories of people and their histories and their positions and their love for uh, each other which brings in uh, those things. On the other hand, uh, there are these uh, analytically oriented people uh, like as you said as you introduced me who would say that no why should this matter it should just matter that what stuff is so whether it's coming from Boston or from Barabanki if the correspondence theory of truth is being discussed that's what all it, uh, it matters but in pedagogy no no I am uh, following what you're saying what I'm saying is that but in pedagogy sometimes it is useful it's useful to, it's useful to uh, bring in these stories so uh, the stories of francis bacon or the story that you know how um, in the time of plato he had to run away from that these are things which bring in a greater interest uh, the difficulty with this uh, it's a double edged sword the bringing in of the personal elements of the people sometimes humanizes and engages sometimes it also has the other kind of a consequence which i am very very uh, worried about which is coming even in your questions, that you know it's a certain kind of a European culture which actually determines a certain kind of scientific orientation. What I, because what, and this is something which I would like to be warned against, it's not at the same time in which you find people uh, like Galileo who discover the truth and it is the same time in which the people exist who want to kill Galileo. So, uh, the people who killed Galileo were also in the same time. So, they did not have the scientific temper uh, and Galileo had it. So, it's not Europe which had scientific temper, yeah. it's only Galileo who had the scientific temper. Similar, so, that's why the personal narratives, the cultural uh, milieu in which scientific uh, discoveries are made uh, have to be very carefully administered because otherwise they also lead to uh, the orthodoxy of the European supremacy which I would be very warned against. So the people of Greece are not represented by Socrates but by Socrates murderers as well. So the people of India also should not be just represented by people who tell uh, fairy tales uh, instead of science, they should also be represented by people who gave their lives uh, in pursuit of truth, uh, withstanding native and uh, external pressure. Can I just admit at this point, <laughs> Professor, at this point I must admit uh, uh, thing that uh, my whole endeavor is not to, is not for it's not oriented to, uh, you know, 
praise science and things. It's it just, I want to show people that there is an aesthetic appeal in science as well. And if you appreciate and understand it, if you, if you get along with it, your own life, the way you conduct your life, the way you live your life, the way you, uh, I mean, there are things of, 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 of uh, aesthetic appeal, there will be yet another stuff added to your, to your list of no, I completely appreciate that. So the idea of a scientific, philosophical, critical life uh, is not an idea of a dull, dry um, life of mechanistic uh, things. It's also a life of great joy and uh, aesthetics. So uh, to my mind, people like Bernard Shaw, people like uh, Bertrand Russell, people like Abhinav Gupta uh, in the in Indian aesthetic tradition are representations of uh, a wholesome life of investigating the truth, playing the music and eating the most delicious uh, gourmet. Yes. <laughs> and uh, my last question uh, is uh, the kind of India we are in today, I am reluctant to admit this, but it seems to me that I am uh, swimming against the stream. What would you say about the project that I'm trying, uh, I've taken up and the cause that I'm working for? How successful it will it become? And, and I'm sure it will, will see. Accepted by the general Yeah, the, the right. I would say, say that... Uh, A few words on it. Uh, your, on your project, I think the idea of bringing in enthusiasm, inspiration and excitement uh, and emotive appeal for the pursuit of a life of uh, investigation and experimentation uh, is an absolutely fantastic project which uh, falls well within the framework of the national education policy which again happens to be uh, written uh, if not completely written, but by, headed by uh, no less a person than uh, you all know, uh, who is a great scientist of the country. Uh, and he talks about holistic education, interdisciplinarity, respect for tradition, uh, human values, constitutional values, and the spirit of service. So the framework of the national education policy, I think, very well would be encouraging for you. Uh, it's forward-looking, global, uh, having some kind of rootedness, uh, which does not mean acceptance, but being respectful. And therefore, I think you will have enough space for that. The other thing is that, that uh, science leading to... Uh, Technology is also something which is very, very well appreciated here and it is not necessarily hyphenated in this policy. Uh, the kind of thing that they are talking about even at the level of higher education, they are talking about uh, fundamental research, they are talking about internships, they are talking about BA research. So all of these things go very well with your uh, vision. And as I said earlier, and I say that very forthright, the policy is absolutely wonderful. The method by which they have immediately started uh, assessing in terms of inter internationalization, 
technical preparedness and employability are a little dissonant with the policy vision. And so you might not fall uh, well with their idea of assessing what you're doing. But on that also, I think that if you bring in excitement into the teaching of science, uh, internationalization, uh, technical preparedness and employability will also follow as uh, a side effect, though they may not be the primary thing. And this is what I believe that fundamental research will of course need skill development, would of course require internationalization, would create a kind of employability, but that employability depends upon what the market is doing. I am not going to prepare my children for employability. The market must prepare for these kind of bright, global, international, excited children. We've had a wonderful conversation today and I look forward to doing it again and sooner. And uh, it's been a wonderful to, uh, to listen to you, your views, very critical of my project. <laughs> and that is welcome because criticism is always welcome. I take it constructively. Professor Rakesh Chandra, thank you so much for joining me on my The Brain Network. My pleasure. I hope people listen to it and respond to it with their own antennas <laughs> and their critical comments on what we were discussing. Thank you. If you like this podcast, do share, like and subscribe to it. It will help us reach more and more people and offer more substantial, more engaging and more enjoyable experience.